if you are a Christian, you are a miracle. If you are a Christian, the very fact that you have become a Christian is a miracle. Now, I don't mean a miracle in a sense like hallmark, feel good, tug at your heartstrings kind of way. I mean a miracle in the same manner as if someone has been brought back from the dead. If you are a Christian, you once were dead and you are now alive. You once were blind and now you see. This is the kind of miracle that I'm speaking of. For a person to become a Christian, the Bible reveals that they need this miracle, this divine action because otherwise it is impossible. This morning's sermon is titled, Seeing is Believing, and it is impossible apart from God. You wonder, does God, is God still in the work of miracles today? This text helps us to see that for us in the church, we are surrounded by miracles. What I'm going to argue for you from this text is that only by the miraculous grace of God can we see and be transformed by the real Jesus. Let me say that again. Only by the miraculous grace of God can we see and be transformed by the real Jesus. I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 18 through verse 43. The hymn referenced in verse 18 is Jesus. So it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. 
This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. May God open our eyes to receive his word this morning. So it is only by the miraculous grace of God that we can see and be transformed by the real Jesus. And we're actually going to hammer around this idea by asking three questions as we walk through the text. Three questions the text naturally provokes or prompts in us. The first such question is simply, who can be saved? If you're perhaps new to Christianity or maybe you've been Uh, around uh, uh, American Christianity or evangelicalism for much time, you might have heard this term saved, and it might have all sorts of different meanings or connotations in your mind. I, I write it like this because this was a question that was directly asked in verse 26. Who then, then who can be saved? And so just think of it as this concept of who can be rescued by God? Or perhaps better, who can escape judgment? or torment for their sin. And so Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. He's getting closer and closer and closer to the seminal events of this gospel, that being his crucifixion, his resurrection. And so as he's going towards Jerusalem, he's teaching, he's revealing what it means to actually follow him, what it means to be a Christian. So I don't know the circumstances behind it, but in verse 18, he encounters a man who's referred to as a ruler, who asks him simply, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a naturally curious response, where Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now we must pause here because you wonder, is Jesus saying that he is not God? Is Jesus saying, whoa, don't call me good. Only God is good. I think Jesus is actually playing with this man. He's he's poking at the inconsistencies of this man's heart. You see, the man acknowledges that Jesus is good like God. But he's putting him to the test. He's asking him questions, trying to measure where, how, and, and what shape his obedience will take. And so Jesus says, I, I think he's saying, Jesus is saying to the man, you know I'm God, but you're trying to play games. And Jesus, the rest of his answer doesn't go along the lines of, okay, here's how to get right with God. It's actually, here's how to follow me and implying because I am God. Anyway, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. And then he starts to list some of the Old Testament's Ten Commandments, one of which was read in our Confession of Sin this morning. But look at the ruler's response in verse 21. 
He said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you know, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that a downer? Isn't that a discouragement that this man would receive? There's a lot going on here. You have Jesus telling this rich guy, sell everything and give to the poor, and that's how you find eternal life. You have Jesus seemingly affirming that if you live this kind of virtuous, moral, commandment-keeping kind of life that this guy has done, then you're on track towards eternal life. What in the world is Jesus getting at? Because all of this sounds quite off from what we understand from the rest of the Gospel of Luke and throughout the Bible, where salvation cannot be earned in our own merit, but is a gift of God. Here's what's happening. This is what Jesus does. He does it to this man here, and He does it to us as well. Human nature says, do these things to make yourself right with God. And Jesus says, yeah, that's not it. Jesus says, I want your heart. Following me is not about clocking in. It is not about doing your duty. It is not about keeping the rules. He says, I want your heart. I want your trust. And so that's why Jesus says to him, all right, let's test what's going on with you. Are you willing to sell everything and follow me? The ruler was dismayed. Why? Because Jesus had gone for his heart. The man's salvation was found in his wealth. The issue in the parable isn't a broadside across the bow of the rich. By the way, we should acknowledge, when compared with the rest of the world and the scope of history, every single one of us is rich, extremely rich like this man. As you prepare to do your taxes in the coming months, your tax, doing your taxes is not the time to take a sigh of relief and say, whew, I'm glad I'm not extremely rich like that ruler. That would have been tough. No, we are all extremely rich like this man. See, if you're familiar with, or if you've ever played chess, the goal is to conquer your opponent's king, to be victorious over your opponent's most precious possession. And whenever you have, uh, when you, whenever you are at a point where you can eliminate your opponent's king with the next move, then you have to, you, you have them in check. To be in check is to be warned. Your most pre- precious peace is under threat. This is what Jesus does. He is saying, your riches, do you trust them or do you trust me? But it doesn't just apply to our wealth or it doesn't just apply to our money or our riches. Jesus could say, your relationships, are they more precious to you than I am? He could say, your health, do you trust your health more than you trust me? Your family, do you find your family to be of greater value to to you or of ultimate worth to you as opposed to me? Jesus would have you to look at everything around you that you would find to be more precious than him. And he says, if you want to follow me, then you must surrender that thing. And frankly, if you find yourself at this moment saying, Jesus, that sounds utterly impossible. You are not far away from grasping the point of this text. Look at verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? 
You see, they said this for a couple of reasons. I think in one sense, they recognize the absurdity of what Jesus is telling this man. And secondly, they recognize and, and they, they operated from a perspective where they believed that wealth or great possessions was a sign of God's blessing. And this man who was trying to live this morally upright life was not a stubborn curmudgeon. He was an upstanding citizen. He kept the laws and the commandments of the Old Testament, and they had, he had the blessings of God upon him as evidenced by his wealth. And so they hear this, and they're not being sarcastic when they say, if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? But Jesus says in verse 27, look at this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And like I said, this is why I said a few moments ago, if you are reading this and you ask yourself, then who can be saved? Or this sounds entirely impossible, then Jesus says you are exactly right. Because he's saying, if you look at me on one side, and then you look at all that you hold precious and dear on the other side, and you say, you must be willing to surrender or forsake all of this in order to have me, Jesus, and you say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I can't do that. I'll take you, I'll worship you, I'll adore you, I will, I will trust you, I'll, I'll surrender my life to you as recognizing you have power over me, but surrendering all of this to you, I just can't do that. That is a bridge too far. And if that's the boat you're in, Jesus says you are very close to understanding what I'm getting at. Now we just have the responsibility to dwell on, okay, how do I go from saying that is impossible to, to finding Jesus to be worthy of my trust and finding him to be worthwhile to trust and believing that I can run to him fully, even forsaking that which I hold dear? That's the question we have to unpack throughout the rest of the sermon. But I should pause here real quick. Because many of us in this room, understandably, it is a gathering of the church, many of us profess to be Christians. And so the text necessarily demands that we stop and ask, ask, have you embraced this Jesus? Or is it more of an intellectual assent to what you understand of Christianity with, without a call to surrender everything to follow the Jesus of this Christianity? Christian, as you think about sharing the gospel with non-Christians in your own life, yes, you want to make sure to explain it clearly. You want to make sure to elaborate on how it uh, uh, addresses and probes the deepest questions of our souls, questions of meaning, purpose, explanation for how and why the world is as it is. But at, it, as it, at its heart, the call to follow Jesus is a call to lay everything down and follow Him, to trust Him, to conform your life to His Word, to commit to His people, to His church. And now hear this, you don't lay everything down and then get nothing, but you get something far greater. Look at verse 28, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of, kingdom of, of the kingdom of God who will not receive many, more, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, I'm going to give a holiday analogy or a Christmas movie analogy uh, that it, it, it really works at illustrating this. So take your mind back a month, back to Christmas. If you've seen the movie The Polar Express, uh, and you remember there's a, a little boy who comes from a family that doesn't have much, and so he's pretty skeptical towards Christmas because he just hasn't gotten much for Christmas over the years. 
And the, the, all these kids, they ride this train towards the, to the North Pole, and they get to see everything in preparation for Christmas Eve. And this little boy finds a gift there in the North Pole that has his name on it. And he says, this, this, this is my gift. I, I normally don't give, get much in regards to gifts. I'm going to go grab hold of this, and I'm going to cling to it. But the problem is it's not time for him to receive that gift. And the problem is that he doesn't realize it, but there's greater gifts that are awaiting, and there's greater joys that are awaiting him, but he must let go of this gift that he has stumbled upon. That's how the kingdom of God works. We find things in this life that we want to, that we want to cling to, that we want to take hold of, that, that we think are of, of, of ultimate value and ultimate purpose for us. When Jesus in the kingdom of God promises us not, not uh, uh, nothing if we will, if we will uh, uh, trust Jesus and follow him in spite of the cost, but he promises us that we will get far greater in fellowship with him and in fellowship with his people. He says in verse 30, you will, not receive many, you will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And so who can be saved? It sounds impossible. You are exactly right. So now we go to the next question. Well, if it sounds impossible, what do I need to understand? Who can be saved? If it sounds impossible, what must, what must be understood? In verse 31, Jesus moves on with his 12 disciples, and he began to speak to them. Let's look at verse 31 and following. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking of himself, everything is written by the Son of, about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Let's pause there. Now, reading this, you want to pause and you want to say, hold on a second, Jesus. Just understand this natural flow of the events that are unfolding, especially if you're one of his 12 disciples who he's taking on with him. He's just said it is... It is, with man, it is impossible. With God, it is possible. And they're flabbergasted about who can be saved in light of these radical demands of Jesus. And Jesus now just moves them on to the next story and says, hey, look at Jerusalem. Isn't it looking nice? You know, I'm going to go and I'm gonna, the Son of Man is going to be uh, delivered over to the Gentiles. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be flogged. They're going to kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. And you hear this, and you say, what does that have to do with this? It's as if Jesus is giving these disjointed stories, and He is. But here's the answer. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to fulfill all that the prophets of the Old Testament have written concerning what He, the Christ, the Messiah, would accomplish. This is the very heartbeat of Christianity, that Jesus Christ has come, that He has given His life to atone for our sins, for your sins, for my sins that he was buried, that he was totally, entirely, 100% dead, verifiable. The Romans were experts in crucifixion. It wasn't a mistake where they buried a guy who wasn't actually dead. No, he was dead. But then he was resurrected. And we are familiar with this story of Christianity, with this heartbeat of Christianity. But we must understand that familiarity does not equal power. You can be familiar with a story or with events, but it doesn't carry that particular experiential oomph of it if it has not grabbed hold of your soul. And so we sit here with these two events 
Jesus being very harsh with this rich ruler, this morally upstanding rich ruler, and Jesus talking about his own death, and we hold these and we say they must be related. How do they come together? Well, Luke the historian is going to tell us. If you remember from the earliest words of Luke's gospel, Luke was a historian. He was a researcher. He, he investigated Jesus' life. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He took, I, I think, about two years to do careful interviews and, and, and to compile this report on the life of Jesus. And Luke here throws in an editorial note in verse 34. Jesus having reference that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be uh, flogged, he's going to be killed, he's going to be uh, buried, he's going to be raised. And Luke throws in this editorial note in verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, it's not like they didn't grasp what he was saying as if Jesus was speaking a foreign language that they could not understand. If somebody walked into this room and started speaking, um, uh, who knows, pick your foreign language, most likely many of us would not understand it. This is not what was happening where they legitimately could not make out his words. They did not understand how his words that they were hearing applied to the circumstances that they were facing. They didn't understand how Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection connected to the work that they believed that he had come to accomplish. But this is where it gets absolutely fascinating. You see, Jesus made no sense to them if he was unable to die. They expected him to be this conquering king, this ruler who would come and prove victorious over their greatest enemy, namely Rome, this occupying force that had them under its powerful thumb. But what Jesus is revealing is that their greatest enemy is not exactly Rome. Their greatest enemy is something far more insidious, something that actually dwells within them, and that is their own sin and their own rebellion against God. And they did not grasp these things. It was hidden from them. Their eyes had not yet been opened. You could actually take the death of Jesus Christ as a clear illustration of the desperate state of the human condition. Because Jesus, as he walked to Jerusalem, as he entered Jerusalem, he was celebrated, he was heralded by those who saw him arrive thinking he was this conquering king, and then they heard what he was really about, and a week later they're crying out for him to be crucified. At the root of our hearts as human beings, we are part of that crowd that would cry out to crucify him. Because we do not receive well to one who would make an assault upon our hearts, to one who would tell us that our priorities are all out of whack, to one that would tell us that he deserves and he alone is worthy of absolute praise and authority in that throne of our lives. And how do we know that Jesus would make us feel that way as well, and not just the people in this story? What was our reaction to Jesus having the audaciousness to tell the man that he must forsake uh, and sell all of his wealth and, and, and forsake that which he hold most precious and dear in order to follow Jesus? We're right there with that crowd saying, this is impossible. Who do you think you are to make such a bold claim? 
And Jesus says, what you need is not victory over that Roman oppressor that stands before you, or not unlocking that situation in your life that perplexes you. You need to be freed from the sin of your heart that grips you. And so Jesus is the one who has come to do this. But that leads us now to the third question. How can He do it? How can He do it? I invite you to follow along as I read, picking up in verse 35. As He drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And he immediately recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, if you were to step back from this text, you would look at this story of this blind man, Jesus walking to Jericho, and this blind man crying out for, him, for his sight to be healed, for his blindness to be healed, and you would say, what is that doing there? Okay, Jesus, you're telling the rich man to sell everything, give it to the poor. You're telling your disciples, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. But your eyes can't see it. You don't understand it. And now this blind man says, help me to see. We're actually, and this is where I was telling you about this, is something that's absolutely fascinating about this part of the Gospel of Luke. See, remember last week in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17, Jesus was telling his audience the kind of person that is ready to receive the grace of God. And what did he do? He used two illustrations, a, tax, a, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector in, a, in the temple. Remember the Pharisee boasting about how great of a guy he was and about all he had done in service to God, and the tax collector off to the side saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then he used the illustration of a tiny infant, a baby. and said, to receive the kingdom of God, you must be like a child. You don't negotiate for it. You don't buy it. You just receive it of no power yourself, of no earning it yourself. You receive it simply by faith. And so Jesus in that first story, or in these first two accounts, he says, you must be humbled of any such idea that you bring anything to the table alone to earn your salvation. Now he is saying in the second story that we're in this week, he is saying that you must receive this miracle. Your eyes must be opened. You must go from darkened to able to see. The veil must be lifted that you are able to behold what I have done for you in the salvation that I have accomplished for you in the cross and in the resurrection. And you must find me not just to be, not, not to be useful as if I can help your life, but worthy of full adoration and trust in your life. Hence the need for you to forsake everything and follow me. And so then Jesus says, okay, when you're entirely humbled, when God opens your eyes, 
then you are ready to see what we'll see next week in the story of Zacchaeus when Jesus goes and dines at Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus has nothing that he can do but boldly proclaim uh, salvation has come, uh, Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Then you're able to see Jesus when you're humbled and when your eyes are opened. You're able to see Jesus in the fullness of who he is. Does that make sense? Is that not wild? So you have this blind man sitting on the roadside begging. And he wonders, like, what's the commotion of this crowd going by? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I love this. There's accounts all through the Gospels. This is fascinating. Where Jesus has this way of, of people that the crowds around him would want to silence or want to push to the side. Jesus says, no, I want to hear from them. I, I, what's he saying? Let me, let me hold on. Stop the, stop the crowd. I'm going to go talk to this guy for a second. The, the, the people that seem to be of little value, the people that seem to be of no significance, Jesus actually draws near to them. And then the ones who are too big for their britches or, or think that they, that they bring everything to the table and that Jesus ought to be grateful for them, they're the ones that Jesus says, hold on a second, you've got to get yourself in, you've you got to be totally reoriented, you're way off base with everything. And so this blind man says to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This line, son of David, he's, he's calling upon Jesus' royal lineage. He knows that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one coming in the line of David who would be the greatest, the, the great king who would reign over his people, his kingdom knowing no end. And I am not a big fan of reading stories in the Bible and saying, okay, now this is, you read it like this, but this is what it really means. The first point that we see here is Jesus is able to give the blind man sight says in verse 42, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. But there's a deeper meaning here that I think we see as we only see it in the context of the whole passage, and that is that our eyes must be opened like the blind man's. Otherwise, we are just grasping around in blindness, hearing Jesus but not understanding the fullness of his great glory not understanding the work that he has done in his cross and in his resurrection, not understanding what it means to forsake everything and follow him. We need our eyes opened to recover our sight. This is what it means to become a Christian. Immediately he recovered his sight. He followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, this is interesting in that this passage is written mainly with an appeal to urging people who are not yet followers of Jesus to, be, to, to, to follow Him before it's too late. Christian, as you reflect upon this, perhaps the, the, the most foundational uh, application that you could pull from this sermon today, praise God for His grace that has opened your eyes. If you have become a follower of Jesus where you have repented of your sin and you have seen His death, His life, His resurrection as directly impactful for you because you are united with Him by faith, you are a walking miracle. The blind has been given sight. The dead has been brought to life. 
Perhaps you hear this, and this just seems hard to grasp, difficult to understand. Perhaps the most fitting application for you, even with a, with a concern about this, would be to leave here today and pray for Jesus to give you the sight to be able to see this. To give you the sight to be able to run to Him by faith. Dear church, don't ever believe that God is no longer in the business of doing miracles. Look around at fellow Christians and see those whom He has given sight to, those whom He has raised to new life. And resolve that you will pray towards this end for Him to continue to be in this business, in this work. For that family member that you've been praying for for a long time to be born again. For that loved one that you desire to see converted. For that friend who does not understand your Christian faith at all. Take heart. Only by the grace of God can we see and be transformed by the real Jesus. Pray, cry out, Son of David, have mercy upon them. Let us trust Him.